0: finishing off a series today we're call, calling Loving Like Jesus, and uh, it's my joy today to, to preach this final message, which, which is loving our neighbours like Jesus. So when I said, turn to your neighbour and guess what Dan is preaching about, that was kind of just a bit of a clever lead-in, wasn't it? So, did any of you guess that? No, not a very good lead-in then, obviously. So, Okay, so we're going to dive straight in to Matthew chapter 22, and uh, this is what we're reading, verse 35. One of them, that's a Pharisee, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Let me just pause for a moment. While I was rehearsing this morning, I was just going over this in our kitchen at home. We've got one of those Amazon Alexa devices in the corner of the room. And I wasn't asking her anything, but I just said, what What is the greatest commandment? And she leapt into life and she said, I don't know the answer to that one, but I'm learning all the time. <laughs> so, anyway, we, we seem to have an answer to that one right here. Let's carry on. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law And the prophets hang on these two commandments. So this is the most important thing you could ever know. It's to love God with everything. And it's to love your neighbor as yourself. To love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, there's, a, uh, there's a, a rerun of this same conversation in Luke chapter 10, where this time somebody comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And this man, he, he reproduces Jesus' answer here brilliantly. He says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbour as yourself. That's to say that he'd clearly been listening to Jesus and saying, well, I now understand what the whole of the Bible is about. It's about loving God, and it's about loving my neighbour. And he answered that question brilliantly. And here's the thing. I wonder if you know the very thing that makes your heart beat. And we read in Jeremiah chapter 31 of uh, the, the, the New Covenant believers, that's us, you, Christians, me. And it says that the law of God is written on our hearts and in our minds. That's to say, loving God and loving your neighbour. You got your heartbeat going this morning? Love God, love your neighbour. Love God, love your neighbour. Love God, love your neighbour. I'm just going slightly out of rhythm now, but that's, that's, what, that's what your heart beats for. That's what a functional, healthy, Christian heart beats for. God and other people. Now, uh, if you've ever had heart trouble, then you'll know that sometimes your heart can beat too fast or too slow or it can have an irregular rhythm. I think they call them arrhythmias. And I remember when I I took up running a few months ago um, and I kind of pushed myself a little bit in those early days And, and I used to get in and I'd stagger through the door Literally staggering, and I'd fall on the sofa in a heap. And Julie would say to me, She said, I I don't think you're meant to look like you're about to die at the end of a run. She said, I think you're probably just pushing it slightly too hard. And I I checked my heartbeat, and I was literally up in the danger zone. You know, do not enter this zone even when exercising. I thought, all right, I'm pushing that a little bit hard. Some of us, our hearts beat too slow or with the wrong rhythm. And that can be true of us spiritually. We can have our hearts beating for the wrong things. But here's the thing about having a healthy heart of love, of loving God and loving your neighbour. It's not to beat too fast. It's not that you become this, uh, this over the, uh, overburdened Christian who's just busy all of the time, going from place to place, just frenzied with activity because you're just trying to love everybody. Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. In fact, you know, after the parable of the Good Samaritan that we're looking at in just a moment, Jesus went off and had dinner with Martha and Mary. That's what he spent his day doing, because it doesn't mean just being busy all of the time. But for some of us, our hearts are just running a little too slow. And we just need to gently coach ourselves into the rhythm that God has for us today, to love our neighbours as ourselves. Love your neighbour as yourself. Five words that are vital to this life and the next. And we, uh, in Luke 10, these, these verses, the man who had summarised the law so eloquently, he wanted to justify himself and he asked Jesus, well, that's great, so love my neighbour as myself. Who is my neighbour? That was the logical question that was to be asked when Jesus said, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, who is Is my neighbour? I think that's interesting because actually, sometimes when I hear these verses preached, people jump immediately to the end of the sentence and they say, "Love your neighbour as yourself." And you know, because these days we love talking about ourselves, don't we? We're probably the most narcissistic culture in in history, and we, we love this idea, don't we? That you know, if 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 I could just love myself a bit more. You know, if I could just look after myself and you know think more highly of myself, then somehow, amazingly, God's plan for humanity will be worked out if I just think of myself a little bit more. That's clearly not what Jesus is saying. You know, because that's not the question the guy asks. He doesn't say, Oh Jesus, tell me how I could love myself more. He says, who is my neighbor? But let me just park that thought for a moment because the way you view yourself is important. Because all of us in this room, me included, will veer between two extremes. We'll we'll think too highly of ourselves and we'll think too lowly of ourselves. And walking with God, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, protects us from these dangers because when you have God in your life, he actually regulates you. He keeps you on track in terms of viewing yourself correctly. So sometimes like me, you can view yourself too highly. You can value your own opinions too highly. You can think you're the answer to all of the world's problems and if people just listen to you then that would sort everything out. And in such a situation, you need a God who is your Father to come alongside and say, Dan, you're not as clever as you think you are. And he humbles us. He'll do that in your life and mine. He'll humble you from thinking too highly of yourself. But Here's the other thing that happens. Sometimes we get into self-loathing, self-hatred. Sometimes we just don't like the people we are. Have you ever had that feeling about yourself? No, this is just the confession from me today. Okay, right. So the sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror or we we we, we review our sort of Behavior and we think, I I don't like the kind of spouse I am, I don't like the kind of parent I am, I don't like the kind of employee I am. We and we we can self-loathe, we we flip between self-loving and self-loathing. And what we need when we're self-loathing is a God who's our father who comes to us and says, Well, I love you. I love you. And when the most important voice in the world says, I love you, that means we don't have any right to hate ourselves because we're loved. And that frees us up to be ourselves, the selves that can then love our neighbour as ourselves. So, this is where we're going today. Who is my neighbour? And we need to back up a little bit because this man who asked this question had a very clear concept of who his neighbour was. Because the whole of the Old Testament law was about that idea. We need to explore that for a moment because we have very little understanding about what a neighbour is. We kind of think of the person next door or perhaps over the road. Maybe two doors down we might consider our neighbour as well. Whereas this person, if you were a Jew in the time when this question was asked, you'd have a very clear understanding of what your neighbour was. And neighbours were in each other's lives all of the time. So this proverb I always find slightly funny because it would have made sense to them, but very little to us. So Proverbs twenty five, verse seventeen gives this warning. It says, Don't visit your neighbour often too often, or you will wear the welcome thin. When's that ever been a problem in the UK? <laughs> when has anybody ever said, you know, my neighbors, they are just in my house too much? And I'm always bothering them, and I'm always... No, that that just doesn't happen here. Perhaps you're from a different culture, you think, no, this is slightly weird what you do here. Everybody lives in their little boxes, and they jump in their cars and go to work and come home. And we interact very little with those in proximity around us. But in Old Testament times, and New Testament times, it was a much more normal culture, You did business, you did life with those around you. You'd be selling and buying things from people who were in proximity to you. And what you find throughout that Old Testament is that God gives personal responsibility to followers of God for those who are in their lives around them, no matter who they are. In fact, you find it running through the theme of the Bible. So in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world... Eve and Adam both sin, and God comes to Adam and he says, why did he let Eve do that? He, he gives Adam responsibility, and Adam's like, well, don't blame me, God, blame Eve. And Eve says, well, don't blame me, blame, blame the serpent. And as they say, the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. But you get the same thing happening in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, where uh, Cain kills his brother Abel, wrongly. And God comes to Cain, he says, Cain, where's Abel? And this shows you what sin does to the human heart. It strangles it of compassion and responsibility. Because Cain blatantly says, to, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And that's the sinful response. And yet, this is what human beings do all the time. You say, well, it's not my responsibility. Not my problem. Somebody else should sort that out. Yet yeah, God holds us to account. You found that the Passover meal was to be shared between families of neighboring households. You find that the Ten Commandments, the last five of those, are all directed at our dealings with other people. Two of them explicitly, explicitly mention the word neighbor. You find that the Levitical law is all about dealing with your neighbor fairly in life and in love and in business. Uh, practical things. So in Exodus 22, if your your neighbour borrowed some money off you or some possession and he said, I promise to bring it back, here's my cloak, here's my coat. And if I don't bring it back, you can keep my coat. God says, well, if he doesn't bring it back and the sun's gone down, you're to go to his house and give him his coat back. You think, well, he's still got my stuff. And God says, yeah, but... If he goes to sleep and he, if, he, if he can't sleep, because he's cold, and his cry comes up to me, God says, "I will hear." So there was a moral responsibility on looking after those, particularly those who were poorer. There was a responsibility to not charge interest to your neighbor when they, when they borrowed off you. There was a responsibility in Leviticus 19, interesting one. It says, "You're to rebuke your neighbor frankly so, they, so that you won't share their guilt. You don't just let people get on with, that's their problem. No, no, if you see somebody doing something, you have to say, that's not a good idea. You're my neighbour and I care about you. And this broke down in Israelite society. The prophets prophesied about it because the, the people of Israel began to exploit the poor and profit from them and charge interest. They began to increasingly commit adultery with their neighbour's uh, spouses. And God began to speak into their lives. So the law and the prophets is summed up as this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, in Jeremiah chapter 31, there's also an indication where God God talks to the new company. He says, no longer will uh, a neighbor say to a neighbor, know the Lord, because they'll all know me. The implication is this. It wasn't just practical needs, but this is what neighbors did to one another. They educated one another in the ways of God. And if you're a good neighbor... You take a spiritual interest in people's lives as well and how they're doing and whether they could come to know God better. So, this is the context of the neighbor that we come into. So, who is my neighbor is the question. And verse 30 of Luke 10, we read these verses, which is probably the, one of the best known parables of Jesus, the Good Samaritan. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the other place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's a story with a very simple point. And lest it gets lost in the whole notion, we understand what a good Samaritan is these days, because we use that phrase a lot. Samaritans weren't good in those days. The story is about something unexpected happening The person who you didn't expect to show mercy on somebody found a load of mercy for somebody. And the story is all about showing mercy in unexpected ways to unexpected people who are not deserving of that mercy, perhaps in our view. And I want to just take our remaining time together today to look at five Observations of this Samaritan man's mercy that he showed in the story that Jesus told because it tells us something about the nature of mercy. God wants you to be a mercy person. If you're to be a good neighbour, it means this. It means mercy. It means showing mercy to people that God brings across your path. And these observations will help us on that journey, I believe. So, so here's the story. It's the story about it's an old age rivalry between Jews and Samaritans, and the first thing that we notice about this Samaritan is that this Samaritan man is that he he overcame the narrative of the day, he overcame the spirit of the age. Think sectarian Celtic versus sectarian Rangers, times a thousand, at their worst. Think Northern Ireland, Protestants versus Catholics at its very worst, times a hundred. These two races hated one another with a passion. In fact, uh, the the Jewish people saw Samaritans as half-breeds. They saw them as people who had compromised the Jewish faith by intermarrying with with, uh, local pagan cultures and then had the audacity to merge the religions together to form a new temple in Samaria and to say this was now the true religion. And so the Jews came along and they destroyed the temple. They said, you're not doing that. And so in return, the Samaritans went to Jerusalem, to the Jewish temple, and they threw human bones into the most holy place to desecrate it. It was the worst thing they could think of doing. There was a lot of hatred and upset between these two cultures. It was known that Jews would prefer to walk tens of miles further so they wouldn't have to walk through Samaritan territory when they were going from one part of Israel to another. Because they didn't want to dirty themselves by even looking at somebody they despised so much. And yet this Samaritan man found himself in the wrong place at the right time. And here's an important factor about showing mercy that it will require us, you and I, to be in the right place in the in the wrong place at the right time. To be among people that we wouldn't naturally feel most comfortable with. But because we're showing mercy, we find ourselves in their company. Here's a second observation about this story: that this Samaritan did something pretty risky. This road was known the Way of blood. It was well known in Jesus' day that this was a road you didn't want to travel unless you had to. It was a winding road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And it was known to have robbers along its place in hiding places. And it wasn't inconceivable, according to some, that one of the elaborate schemes that might happen is that somebody would act dead on the road, to lie there, so that somebody would come up and just see if they were okay, and then the robbers would come out and jump on them and steal their stuff and perhaps kill them, while the person who was on the road was actually just part of the decoy. And so... We can feel some sympathy for this Levite and this priest in this story because they're walking along the road and they're just trying to get from A to B and they don't know what to do about this person who's lying on the street. Could it be a hoax? Could they be putting themselves at risk? And what you find about being a mercy person is this, that inevitably it means taking risks. It means choosing a narrative that thinks that that I must do something here rather than get fearful about what might happen to me if I do something. Caution never produces mercy. And I don't know about you, but this is my experience. This takes work sometimes, because sometimes I find when I... Often, needs that come in my direction are people who stop me and they say, I, I need some money for something. People come to the church door and they say, I, I need money. And they tell their story. And, and I, I do those things that we all do. So, well, maybe I'll buy you a sandwich or, or here's a bus ticket. But, but sometimes people say, no, This is the reason I need this money. And I don't have time to really check into it and all those things. And sometimes I, I don't quite know what to do. Do you ever have that thing? Yeah, I think we all do. And here's the, the place I've come to. with it. I think, well, I feel I have to take a risk in those situations. And I think, it's better for my wallet to be slightly emptier and for me to have put some trust in somebody than it is for me to keep my wallet closed and risk hardening my heart. And... Sometimes I'll go home and I'll relay the story to Julia. And even as I tell the story, I think, of course, this, I've just been totally had here. Yeah. <laughs> totally made up. And what's really hurt the most is my pride. I like I've, got, I've got duped here. Do you ever feel that way? Well, sometimes that cost for us in showing mercy is that we get duped. But it's worth it for the sake of a soft heart that's responsive to God and that will meet many needs in that process. Here's the third, uh, third observation that he accepts interruption and he's not constrained by his busyness. Here's the picture we have of the Samaritan. He's just ambling along the road on his donkey. He's got nothing better to do in the world, has he? Of course he has, he's going somewhere. He's just as busy as you or as me. He's on his way somewhere else. He's on his way doing something different. Yet this comes as an interruption. Here's what's going to be true of you if you're going to be a mercy person. Interruptions will come into your busy life that will will force you to reprioritize. Wouldn't it be nice if God gave us mercy opportunities to fit our schedule and our diary? But he doesn't. The Samaritan didn't get it to fit his diary. He came across it. Sometimes God will force you to re-evaluate your priorities. We have this idea these days in busy Edinburgh, and I, I I, I feel busy and I know some of you are way busier than me, but we have this idea that productivity is really all about planning. And If we just plan hard enough and work hard enough, then we get everything done that we need to do. Except... If in all our productivity and planning, we miss the heart of God and we miss loving our neighbour because we were so busy doing something that we felt was more important. So today, let me say it this way, that if you're too busy to show mercy, you're too busy. And if I'm too busy to show mercy, then I'm too busy. Because inconvenience and interruption must be part of this lifestyle of being a good neighbour. Here's the fourth thing that we can observe, that availability trumps expertise. So it says, He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his donkey, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. It was a pretty low expertise solution, if you don't mind me saying. A bandage... Some oil and wine, that was the equivalent of New Testament paracetamol, I think. And a donkey, a taxi ride. A bandage, a paracetamol, and a taxi ride. And in doing so, he loves his neighbor. Some of us these days, we're just paralyzed because we don't feel like we know enough or have enough expertise. And and there's so many wonderful organizations doing so many wonderful things with people who are so equipped to help and we, when we come across him, you just think, well, I just don't know what to do with this. And this man does the right thing. He, he takes pity. He thinks, well, I don't have much, but I have pity. I have compassion. He says in Romans 12 that mercy is one of the gifts of God, showing mercy. Some of you here have the gift of Mercy you just find yourself drawn into situations and being able to help people and encourage them and direct them in the right place to, to have their needs met. But I want to say to all of us today, don't let that stop all of us from showing the fruit of the Spirit, which is for every believer, which is kindness. We're to be kind in any and every situation to people we meet. For some of us, we need to make sure we have a basic toolkit like the Samaritan, that we know a few questions that we can ask anybody, no matter what their situation in life. And perhaps we have a couple of numbers on our phone of of organizations that could perhaps help. We'll put something in the small group notes this week of, of things that you could use in your toolkit to help people who are in need. And here's the fifth and final thing. He absorbs the personal cost while not receiving personal recognition. He says, the next day he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, maybe 100 pounds, something like that in our culture, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Here's the thing about being a mercy person. It's costly. It costs us money. It costs us time. Yet this man did it willingly. This, uh, you, you might wonder why I've got a picture of um, some strange man on the screen there. Uh, that's uh, St. Nicholas. That's the guy that's, that Santa, Father Christmas, is based on. Um, he, he was a guy, his parents died when he was young and he received a, a massive amount of money from his parents in, in that, uh, as an orphan. And He chose to spend all that money giving it away to poor people. And he went round and he used to just hide coins in poor people's clogs and socks while they were hanging outside because he wanted to do it discreetly. He obviously didn't do it so discreetly that people didn't know it was him. But (laughs) but but that's where the whole whole thing comes from, the whole Santa thing. He he, he tried to do it in secret because he he didn't want it to be recognised, but he wanted to do the right thing. He served in obscurity. The Samaritan served in obscurity. He got on with what needed to be done, and it cost him, but he did it willingly. In fact, if we were to put all of these characteristics together, we'd find ourselves describing somebody else in the Bible somebody who absorbed personal costs while not receiving personal recognition, somebody who made himself available somebody who accepted interruption and inconvenience, somebody who took a risk, and somebody who overcame the narrative of his day. And Jesus came into the world. And it says he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. They weren't even on the same page, wanting him to come, but he came anyway. He took a risk on us. he woke every day as a human being while he was on the earth accepting the inconvenience of daily interruption. He made himself available to the Father and he said, not my will but yours. And it cost him. In fact, he cost him his life as he paid for the sin of the world. And yet he did it willingly for you and for me. He showed us mercy when we deserve judgment He healed us, cared for us, paid the price for us. And here's the most wonderful thing about loving God and loving our neighbour. When we do it, we give opportunity for people to look at us. As we do this in obscurity, people say, wow, who is this God? Who is this God that they follow? Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is what happens. When we love our neighbour, God gets the glory. Now, God wants to work on our hearts today. don't know about you, I, I read these things and I think, well, my heart needs to be somewhat softer than it is right now. And that lawyer who asked Jesus the question, he must have gone away that day. Starting, he started the day feeling pretty good about himself because he knew who his neighbour was and how to meet their needs. And then Jesus kind of raised, changed the goalpost and he said, well, it's everybody. <laughs> everybody you mean. And part of Jesus' point is to say, you know, you can't do this by yourself. You need God. You need his help. You need to depend on him. You need his forgiveness and grace when you don't do it. But here's a question that I want us to just think about in these last few moments together. It's this. I often ask the question, where do I start with this? Where do I start in loving my neighbor? And I see so many great organizations doing so many great things. Most of us never know that those organizations, like Christians Against Poverty or the Salvation Army, had very, very tiny beginnings where God began to work with one or two people and he began to put his heart into them. And I just want to show you a video I came across recently. I've watched it a load of times because I just find it, it's good for my heart. <laughs> and it's the story. Of, it's a well-known uh, Christian organization in, in Edinburgh Bethany Christian Trust. And it's the story of the couple who founded that remarkable charity that does so much good in our city. It's a five-minute video. It tells you something of their story. So let's watch this together then. We'll worship together.